Meanwhile, in New Jersey... So, Marissa, what talking points do you want to hit on in this week's episode? Well, Jackie, let's talk about how the film addresses the patriarchy. Ooh, and representation of marginalized people. Ooh, ooh, and even philosophical ramifications of good versus evil and horror. We can point out the triangle boobs, talk about the blood splatter, and oh, the practical effects. <sighs> um, and also the male gaze? My gaze at the males. hi From feminism to fangirling, the Jersey Ghouls cover all the bases of horror from a woman's perspective. New episodes are uploaded every other Sunday. Just search Jersey Ghouls to find us on social media and your favorite podcasting app. You've been lost in the woods for hours now, stumbling around in the dark. You come around the bend and see two people roasting marshmallows over a roaring fire. They see you coming into the clearing and gesture over to pull up a log. Welcome to Campfire Ashes. I'm Paul. And I'm Jess. Join us as we tell each other our originally written spooky stories around the campfire and then dive into the lore and legends that inspired them. Is it something that goes bump in the night? Is it something menacing lurking past the tree line? Or is it just weird and otherworldly? You'll find it here on Campfire Ashes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or right here on the Geekscape Network. Meanwhile, in New Jersey... So, Marissa, what talking points do you want to hit on in this week's episode? Well, Jackie, let's talk about how the film addresses the patriarchy. Ooh, and representation of marginalized people. Ooh, ooh, and even philosophical ramifications of good versus evil and horror. We can point out the triangle boobs, talk about the blood splatter, and oh, the practical effects. <sighs> um, and also the male gaze? My gaze at the males. hi From feminism to fangirling, the Jersey Ghouls cover all the bases of horror from a woman's perspective. New episodes are uploaded every other Sunday. Just search Jersey Ghouls to find us on social media and your favorite podcasting app. Everybody and welcome to a special bonus episode of Horror Movie Night. Daniel has been on the show once before, if you recall, about a month or two ago at Fantastic Fest. He is the director of Cam, which is coming to Netflix on Friday. It has been one hell of a ride for you, Dan. Uh, so let's talk about it a little bit. It, it has, and it's really crazy because I I just you know heard you do that intro, and I'm like, oh my god! I for a second I was like, I'm going to settle in and listen to a podcast, and I realized I'm. I'm on the podcast. <laughs> it's really a, a kind of a wild feeling. So um, this is, I feel like this is like, I'm podcast in a room, but this is the first time like hearing it. And it's, it's, it's kind of great. So yeah, things have been, things have been really wild. And I think leading up to the Netflix release, like seeing things pick up steam and all of a sudden a lot of people are seeing the movie and we have a trailer out and it's kind of, I, I don't know how to process it. So what was your background into filmmaking? I know when we talked at Fantastic Fest, we talked a little bit about the horror films that you loved. You mentioned like The Shining and stuff like that. But I mean, is 
how long has it been to get to this point, to get to this moment where you're about to promote a movie on Netflix? Yeah. I mean, I've wanted to be a filmmaker since I was probably 10 years old. And, and I grew up in like a very sciencey family. And um, at the outset of, you know, wanting to go and have a career in film, my, my, my parents were not particularly supportive. And full credit to them, they did a 180. And, and, you know, could not be any more supportive at this point. I think they really just kind of wanted to see that I was like, actually serious about it. And that it wasn't, you know, a phase where I wanted to go and, and, you know, be like, hey, let me invest 10 years of my life in a career that will almost certainly never happen. Um, <laughs> but but no, you know, so I, I just really obsessively watched movies when I was younger. And then, you know, knowing how kind of technical filmmaking was, wanting to get more experience like actors and stuff, I started a theater company in high school because I was just like, oh, this will be a, this will be kind of a good way to make stuff. And that's actually where I first met Issa, or we, we, who's the writer of Cam. We actually went to rival high schools, but but we met and we were dating, and so she worked on you know a couple of my plays, and that's when we started working together. And then you know I'd always wanted to be a filmmaker and. When I was in high school, I was really obsessed with Darren Aronofsky, and I'd, I'd known that he had went to Harvard. And so I went to go visit schools, and I was going to schools in Boston, and I emailed the guy I knew who had been his film professor, whose name is Rob Moss, and was like, hi, I'm a high school kid. Will you meet with me and tell me about the Harvard Film Program? And he was like, sure, why not? So I actually went and met with Rob, and he explained to me how the Harvard Film Program worked. And I was like, this is really cool, because it was unlike any of the other film programs I'd seen, where it was like really focused on learning what images were, and how to talk about images, and how to make images, and and how to think about film, and not so much production. And there's a lot of other film schools and film programs out there that have that focus, but I think the way the Harvard method works and this is a very small department in a very big school that nobody really knows Harvard has a film program. Um, and the way he explained it to me, I was like, that sounds amazing. And then I was lucky enough to get into Harvard, which was wild because I, I got kicked out of high school. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> so I ended up being able to, I ended up studying with Rob and, and the coolest thing about the Harvard film program is that they have their, their kind of landmark thing they do is the second semester of your intro year, the entire film class directs a documentary film by committee. There's no director. And so, and it's a full semester, you make a 20, shoot 25 reels of 60 millimeter, you make a film about something, you have to choose the subject together. You have to decide what you're shooting. You have to, you know, decide on every edit, every sound choice. And what it, it when you're thinking about, you know, how do you become a filmmaker? It's the, it's the best exercise possible because it's stripping all ego out of the equation. And saying, when you do this exercise, by the end of it, you will know how to talk about every shot, how to convince other people to go in your direction, how to explain what your shot and what your choice is doing to other people and make it convincing enough that they can follow behind you. And knowing that you have no actual power. And I think that when you think about what you need as your fundamental skill as a director, it's exactly that. And so, um, you know, I, I kept doing stuff at the school. I made a couple of student films and then graduated and spent three years just really struggling to survive and eventually kind of, you know, found some freelance gigs, got a few commercials, made some money on those, had some kind of savings. And then, you know, around that time, I reconnected with Issa, who had, you know, 
become a, a cam girl and hired me to shoot porn for her uh, for her show because she really wanted some like very kind of like cinematic pornography made. And that was my introduction to the world of camming and to her, you know, to, to what she was bringing to that, which was, you know, something I hadn't encountered before, which was a sex worker who with agency, a sex worker who was a creative professional, who was engaged in like self-expression, who wanted to do what they were doing, who was very aware and conscious of the craft behind what they were doing. And that was something that was really exciting to me. And I was like, I've never seen this in a movie before. And um, which is crazy. You know, we've had God knows how many movies about sex work and we've never seen that representation. And so, I mean, not never, but rarely and, and definitely not in like mainstream film. So at first we were thinking about making a documentary movie, but we really wanted, you know, documentaries are always kind of very outside looking in. And one of the other things that I was really exposed to a lot at Harvard was the idea of sensory ethnography and questioning, you know, of documentary ethics. And I just didn't think that there was a way to do a good doc about it. And so we also wanted to do something that had a more mass appeal. And so when we kind of came up with the idea of doing, you know, a, a genre film, uh, it just took off from there. So we had our first conversation about that November 17th, 2015. And the movie comes out on Netflix November 16th, 2018. That's awesome. The year's almost to the day. I mean, there's so much to, to digest from all of that. Everything you talked about with what you learned at Harvard, like for the people who are going to sit down this weekend and watch Cam, you're going to see all of that being played out because I have to say with all the films that I saw at Fantastic Fest and Fantastic Fest is definitely a, a whirlwind of a, of a weekend. This film was the one that had the most visual presence. It, it sticks with you. And it was the film that you kept hearing people talking about walking around outside because you, you do so many things with the camera tricks and then your editor did a fantastic job of just making it happen at the at the right time everything just seemed perfectly planned out and paced so that whole harvard education absolutely pays off and comes through in the film but what i want to ask yeah. you is what what made you do you remember what the movie was that made you decide that you wanted to direct so i don't and i have like a really weird relationship with movies I've seen because it's it's PT Anderson has a great quote about it where he's just like I rarely remember what happens in movies I love but I remember how they made me feel and <clears throat> I can't really say what the film that like galvanized my interest in film or any of that was because I think it was a lot of different things and for me wanting to become a director a lot of it had to do with obsessively reading IMDb and Wikipedia and Roger Ebert reviews and just desperately wanting to know everything about how this thing worked that was making me feel these crazy things. But I think that a movie that I definitely point to is something that flipped a switch in me for two reasons is a film called The City of Lost Children, the Jean-Pierre Genet film. Yeah. I, abs I mean, I still absolutely adore as much as I've maybe grown out of it a little bit. Um, but But it was a film that I think was one of the first films I saw that I felt truly spoke to me directly. You know, when you find those movies and you're like, this is a movie that feels like it was made for me and me alone. Um, that was, I think the first time I had that with a film, but more importantly, uh, we had this video rental store in Boulder, Colorado, where I grew up called the video station and the video station. There was this guy who worked there named Steve. And I'd seen a trailer for the city of lost children before a Monty Python DVD. 
And I was really obsessed with the imagery and I kept trying to get my parents to let me see it. It was like 11 at the time or something like that. And um, I kept trying and they were like, it's R, we don't know. We went to the video station and there was this guy, Steve, and we really trusted Steve, the movie guy's recommendations. And my parents were like, City of Lost Children, you think it's okay for the kid? And he's like, he's going to love it. And so I it was like one of my first R-rated movies and I just, yeah, yeah, I fell in love with it. And then I started going back and I started talking to Steve about movies and he started, you know, he said, you should watch Kurosawa, you should watch Kubrick, you should. And, you know, so he, he just, and this was a time in my life where I really thought that, you know, this was a hobby and I was going to go and become a scientist like, like my parents and my sister. And then after a couple of years of that, you know, off and on casually talking, you know, we, we were just casually chatting one day and I was a 13 year old kid and he was like, you know, you've got a really good eye for movies. Have you ever thought of you know, writing a script? And I, it had never occurred to me as something that I was allowed to do. And so I was like, no, but I couldn't shake that idea. And that was, that was when I started writing. Yeah, he was uh, like your guru. He was a guru. And I, I'm friends with him on Facebook and I, I keep like trying to like get like coffee with him, but I, I don't think he really knows who I am. Like, <laughs> like he like knows I'm like somebody he knows from Boulder, but like, I don't think he's like, so I, 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 one of these days I gotta, I gotta really talk to that guy. But, uh, but that was, that was a very important moment for me. And I love those elements. I have like an uncle that's kind of estranged from the rest of our family. And I haven't seen him since I was 15 and I had to find his kids on Facebook to get his cell phone number just cause I wanted to thank him for introducing me to horror because it opened so many doors to me. Cause I was afraid to watch horror movies. Mm. He sat me down and said, you should watch the monster squad. You'd like it. And he made me watch monster squad when I was like eight and it unlocked something. I mean, I needed to get his phone number so I could text him because I was about to be interviewed for a monster squad documentary. And I was like, you led me to this pathway. Like, please answer me. And I never got a response. It was like one of the most heartbreaking oh, no. things. I'm like, oh, no. But I don't know. I, I, I connect with what you're talking about, though, with that with Steve. The, the It's interesting, the people who they don't even know that they put you on a pathway, but they were so important into the overall story of your life. Yeah. And then I think it's, it's something that, that is something I really try to practice, which is is as much as I can, which is, you know, when, when you feel like somebody is on the edge in your life of, well, are they going to take a creative path? Are they going to go and pursue that dream? I think it's hard to remember sometimes how scary it can be on the other side and how you can feel so much like, God's oh, not my right to even try to do this. And what I really, you know, try to remember is I try to remember that when I, when I see that, I always just try to encourage people because I just think that you never know where they're going to end up in 20 years you know, 10 years, like maybe that'll be the one thing you said that, that, that just changes the direction of somebody's life irreversibly. And, and it's, it's, it's an incredible thing when it happens. It really is. So you took three years basically from the conversation starting to the debut on Netflix. Um, what was the point when you were making this movie where you had a moment where you thought, Oh my God, I think this is going to work because it's a very risky the whole thing's a risk, <laughs> like the whole concept of the movie, the visual style, all of it's one of those things where you could really take the dive and go for it. And it just no one gets it. But like, what was the point where you thought, oh, my God, we're connecting. This is going to work. This is actually going to work. So that's wild. It's, it was insanely early in the process. 
what happened is I went to Sundance. So Issa and I started having the conversation about the movie in November of 2015. And I went to Sundance in January of 2016. I had some friends with movies in the festival and I knew some folks there and I just needed to get out of my shell and, 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 uh, 2015 had been like a rough year and I was like, I'm just going to go to Sundance and I've got this idea and I have no idea if it's worth a shit. And it was a time when I, I had knew nobody in the industry um, and had no real connections just outside of, you know, a couple of friends. And I just, but I had this idea and I, I thought it was exciting. And so I started just, I went to Sundance and I was just there watching movies and hanging out with some friends and started casually talking to people about this idea, a psychological you know, thriller about, webcam pornography um, written by a former cam girl. And I would tell people the opening scene of the movie. Um, that was it. I didn't even want to tell anybody about the doppelganger because I was afraid that it, I knew that it was something that could be used for any social media thriller. And if anybody there kind of had that idea, oh, we're trying to crack our social media thriller and heard that, it, it was it was too big of a risk. Yeah. So I, um, I started picking it and just based on me verbally describing the opening scene and talking about Issa and her background and the nature of our collaboration, um, people were so excited. And I started seeing like, oh my God, like there's maybe a movie in this. And, and seeing that, that, that more than anything, what was so exciting was that these ideas that we had that we thought were pretty politically subversive, that there seemed to be people who were really interested in hearing them and hearing what we had to say and, who were really responding to our approach. And it was the first time that I ever felt like I was a filmmaker in the actual industry. And I'll say, you know, the energy that I got out of the personally out of that Sundance, I think carried me through it because it was, it was kind of like, I know there's something in here that is going to connect with audiences. Yeah. That opening scene is so it, it does. It grabs you. I don't know if you even know this about my experience watching cam, but I flew out to Austin for uh, Fantastic Fest and I had tonsillitis at the time. Oh, I, could wow. barely, I could barely talk. I could barely swallow. I didn't sleep the entire night because I was in pain. I had a 6 a.m. flight, which meant that I have to be up at 3.30, got to the airport at 4, flew in, got to the got to Austin at like 10.30 in the morning. I couldn't get to sleep in the hotel room. I was trying to rest oh, up. Please. Cam was the first movie that I watched to kick off Fantastic Fest. Oh my god, what a what a state! And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make this. <laughs> it's like yeah. 8 p.m. I'm tired, and that opening scene happened, and I could not have been more fucking awake for the next like <laughs> 90 minutes. <laughs> like whatever was going on in my life disappeared within those first 10 minutes, and I was just captivated by the story. Yeah. And I totally buy that just pitching people on that idea, you know, it's 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 so important to have that opening scene that will grip the audience. And it's something that a lot of especially horror films, a lot of genre films forget that just because you're being a slow burn, which is fine, you need to entice the audience right out the gate. Yeah. And you do that in spades. And it is still a bit of a slow burn, but you keep us interested the whole way until shit gets crazy. Well, you know what? I'll just put it this way. I, it's something that I think the, the witch does so well is it's opening 10, 15 minutes are so compelling. It can just literally the rest of the movie could be absolutely horrible and it wouldn't have mattered because I was so in it. 
yeah. because of that, even though it's a very slow kind of almost, you know, even yeah, very pretty experimental and abrasive film. Even recently with A Quiet Place, I thought A Quiet yeah. Place could exist as a five minute short and I would have loved it with the same level as yeah. the full 90 minute movie. <laughs> like, yeah. No, it's so true. And it's, it's I mean, I, I do think that we get a ton of mileage and can out of the opening. And and it's also something that I'm just proud of is like it being my first film and Issa's first film. I think it's also one of the things where you, you know, you kind of think a little bit, oh, this is this is this is how I'm this is this is who I'm telling everybody I am. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty happy to tell people that that's that's who I am. And and that that kind of being my my opening statement for a career of some sort, you know, I, I think that 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 was something that Issa and I kind of talked about. Just like this is this is a pretty fun way to to kind of come out as filmmakers. I think so, and I think that there's an element of you know it's a genre film, but it's a genre film that you can tell has an element of like personal attachment mm. to it versus. And it's something that we've talked about in a lot of these movies as we're reviewing some of these really trashy 80s horror films. You can tell the passionate horror film for the I'm told that if I make a horror film, it will get my foot in the door movies. Totally. And, and there's a very genuine from from her background and from your background where that personal touch really flows through and it's not just let's make a horror movie we hear that we can make those cheap and then they'll make a lot of money <laughs> like there's yeah. so much more to it <laughs> totally totally let's talk about the the casting because there's i mean the casting in this is phenomenal you have great performances scattered throughout the entire movie and how did that come about i mean i guess you did like a normal casting process but was there like an aha moment when when someone like madeline walks in and you're just like oh that's her we found her or because if, if only it was that easy it was a really hard movie to get people to even come in and read for but especially for the lead just because it's like one of these things where it's it's really risky subject matter it's an unknown male first time director um, I haven't even made a short, you know, and, and definitely have nothing with like sexual content on my resume. So it's a, it's a big risk. And a lot of the agencies and we couldn't put, you know, Blum had helped develop the film, but they weren't producing it. So we couldn't really like put them out in front of it. So it was really just like, you know, we had to find somebody who, who was just in love with the idea. And, and luckily, you know, my dad actually saw Madeline in a Black Mirror episode. And was like, you, you got to cast this girl. She's the perfect Alice. And we, we beat down her door. You know, as soon as we saw her tape, we were like, she has that perfect level of kind of technical ability, but she's very natural. And I think that many, many, many actors who are super technical, they, they still feel a little actory. And that's fine. Like, I love watching those kinds of performances, you know? Like, I, I love watching, like, an amazing technical thing. But with this film, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have really carried um you know it needed to feel still really real and and that's really tough and uh maddie just brought that she she's so natural on camera and she disappears into her role so completely and that was just evidence from the first five minutes of an orange of a new black episode that we saw with her in it and we were just like you know she's perfect and um and what was also really important is she she really connected with the film's politics and with Issa and was really passionate about everything else we were trying to accomplish with the project, which allowed her to really kind of just become a co-filmmaker in so many ways. You know, um, we, we had a very detailed nudity writer, you know, because you have to for SAG, but 
we had made it very clear that, you know, on the day we weren't going to enforce it. It was up to her how naked she would or would not be. And that contributed a lot to the character. But also, you know, there were times where she came on set and she was like, I think I need to be more naked than this. And there were times she would come on set and be like, I think the nudity is being kind of misplaced here. And ultimately, by that point in the process, she knew the character better than we did. And she was right every single time. And so I think that it's, it's something else about Maddie and about the process of finding her and 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 talking to her is it it was about her amazing ability as an actor, but it was also about her kind of perspective and the way that she was able and willing to collaborate as a as a filmmaker um, that that we knew was important and that she brought one hundred and ten percent. Yeah, and I I I talked about this briefly when we spoke in September, but I for a few months worked as a personal assistant to a porn star and. One of the things that I loved right out the gate from this movie was watching Alice. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what they're like. Like they they were they she was so normal. And that was the weirdest thing was I remember my family coming out to L.A. to meet me. And I was like, oh, let me introduce you to my boss. And afterwards, my mom was like, she is so normal for a porn star. And I'm like, they're all like that. Yeah, like, <laughs> like it's, it's a job. It's just a job. And I think that, that, that that's the thing is there's so many demands that we place on what sex work is or is not. But, you know, uh, if, we, if we thought about treating it the same way that people treat filmmakers or construction workers, you know, I think that we would be in a really – a really different kind of place because you know um ultimately sex workers rights just come down to uh to workers rights and to labor rights and um i don't think that we 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 pay enough uh, respect to that as a as a society or any respect to that <clears throat> okay so i want to do something a little different at this point and people who are listening right now uh the movie comes out friday it's going to be on netflix uh, I know that I'm going to be doing a viewing with my friend Laura at her house at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we'll have a nice little chat going on the Facebook page. So go to the uh, Horror Movie Night Facebook page for Friday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard, and you can join in the conversation as we all watch it together and get really excited for this great movie. And then after we're done all that, come back and finish this episode because I want to kind of get a more spoilery deep dive with Daniel which I wasn't able to do at Fantastic Fest because no one knew when it was coming out at that time. So uh, I'm going to give you a couple seconds to, to pause it, save it, whatever. All right, here we go. Daniel. <laughs> so at this point, I really want to talk about the binder that I think you mentioned in every single interview. But I want to talk about a little bit more with basically Madeline's playing three characters at the end of the day. Uh, she's playing the normal girl, the girl in front of the cam, and the doppelganger virus creature <laughs> girl. Uh, how, how hard was it? Was there any difference in you directing those different personalities, or did she have that on lockdown pretty much? She had it on lockdown. I mean, it was definitely the kind of thing where we, had, we, we were not able to rehearse this film. Yeah, uh, It was too tight. Uh, we cast Maddie, you know, maybe a month before shooting and she was doing press for handmaids and shooting. And uh, so really, you know, after we cast her, Issa and I sat down with her and we read through the entire script, just the three of us. And we basically just went through every single line and had Maddie rewrite them in her own voice so that she would just feel like you know, she was really owning the character. And we talked, you know, about all of the decisions we had made. 
And Issa had kind of, you know, had a number of conversations with Maddie early on in the casting process about her experiences as a sex worker and everything. And we'd given Maddie lists of cam girls that we liked and all of that. From that moment forward, Maddie just took it over. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of ways that you adjust an actor's performance. But the biggest way that I would really work with Maddie in this is I would just kind of remind her like where we were in the movie uh, because there were so many different moving pieces. And a lot of it was like she would do a take as Lola and I would say that's too advanced Lola. We got to take it to mid Lola. And I wouldn't even have to say more than that. I'd just say like take it back two steps and she would know exactly where that was. And, And so I think that, you know, it was really something where we were getting Maddie has like, walks into set knowing all of the body language ahead of time, especially with the camming stuff, because she was borrowing so explicitly from from this legacy of camming and pornography, but also just you know from really thinking about and diving into I think her own sense of performed femininity, and then it was really just about like figuring out at, at what level are we kind of deploying that at any at any given time. So. I've always wondered this particular question because I think that there's a very easy way to go in this direction. And I applaud you for not going in this direction, but was there ever a point in the process where you were going to go the Tyler Durden route of like broken psyche? Never, never. No, it, 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 we always, it was always more or less this ending what came very late in the she always smashed her nose. She always started a new account. What came late in the process was that was the final battle sequence between the two of them. Uh, it took us a, like <clears throat> that that we actually after after we had kind of set up the movie at Blumhouse that came up um, because originally the motivation behind the nose smash was was that Lola didn't go away and that was about the only way that she could separate herself from Lola. But it, it didn't really feel victorious enough and it, it didn't feel it didn't feel like, you know, there had ever really been a showdown between the protagonist and the antagonist, which is really critical for a genre movie. And so we we spent a lot of time trying to figure out you know, how do we get a satisfying climax in this without revealing a bunch of stuff and without having it be like, you know, she gets the antivirus software and plugs it into the mainframe and you know, and it's fighting off. Yeah, so it just, but how, how do you, how do you actually just have it be about these two characters? Um, and I got really stoned uh, and I was really kind of just, we were really stuck and I got really stoned and I took a shower and while I was in the shower, I was looking in the mirror and I was like, oh my God, what if she goes inside the show? And I, <laughs> I called Isa and I was like, Isa, I think I fixed it. Incoherent. <laughs> And then I had to draw a diagram, and then I had to draw another diagram, and then he just was like, "Oh my god, it's so good!" And then, and then she went and wrote the scene. Um, yeah. you know, so it, 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 that was that was really what we what we what we had to kind of figure out. But the rest of the component pieces were always there. One, I mean, it's, I mean, isn't that the classic film writing thing too? Is the the final piece in a lot of ways is like that's the part that sticks with you. You know, what I mean, like that final showdown just her smashed up face and the, you know, the, the weird when you're standing between two mirrors effect that's going on and every, it's, it's so trippy and it's so 
different. And I know you pulled a lot of influence uh, from previous conversations from like a, a David Lynch and a lot of that 70s horror where it's like, is it horror? It's very psychedelic. And I mean, that is your psychedelic moment, if totally. ever there was one. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I think that that on some level for that, well, you know, it was, what's so interesting is for something like that, I think that the ultimate motivation was actually a practical one. We had to figure out just how to get her back on the show. And I think that obviously, you know, the, the mirrors inside of mirrors, it, it presents a really exciting visual opportunity. But those are also my favorite things in film is when is when you've written yourself into such a horrible corner. The only way out is to is to kind of innovate your way out of it. And and, and that was definitely what the, the climax was. And it, it took us about four months to edit and do all the special effects for it. It was a, it was a, it was a beast of a scene because I think that it, it's really hard to pull anything coherent out of that. Cause there's so much going on in any given shot and, and, and like so much kind of character moments happening and, and really trying to kind of pull out the clarity there was, uh, was really important. Well, and the other thing that I really like about this movie and I, I never know if this is the direction that people hope things will go, but in the same way that it follows really felt like it was its own unique movie that could have countless sequels if it wanted to. I feel like there's always a place for Cam to come back or for, for Lola specifically to come back or for this to happen again to a different person. And, you know, you mentioned if someone's doing another social media, um, thriller like there's just such a potential for this to to continue to roll like it doesn't have to end here but if it does it's a beautiful ending i will say uh there was another denouement for the movie uh that we didn't use that was very disturbing that had to do exactly there was a little bit more of a sequel setup uh, that if, if, you know, the movie performs incredibly well on Netflix and they come back to us and they're like, Hey, would you do a second? Uh, there's one idea that I would actually be interested in exploring. Um, I don't think I can say what it is because I don't want to give it wait. away. <laughs> it's, it's, I think that there's, there's, there's a place to take the story. That's actually pretty exciting. That's fantastic. My favorite thing about this movie is trying to explain this movie to people without ruining the movie for people. <laughs> and it that's a good that to me is a sign of a good movie is where you're like all the things that you're most excited to tell them about. You're like, but you got to see it for yourself because I can't ruin this for you. But like yeah. things get crazy. <laughs> that's what I want. Yeah, that's, that's my favorite kind of thing. All right. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on this little bonus episode. Um, guys, if you didn't listen to me and just listened all the way through, uh, sorry if we ruined a little bit of the movie, but you should still. I mean, how watch. dare you, audience members? <laughs> Come on. We gave you plenty of warning. Yeah. <laughs> but go on Netflix. Uh, check it out. November 16th. Stream it like 40,000 times so we can get this sequel because <laughs> now I'm interested uh, in that. So let's get that going. Um, and thank you again, Daniel. Is there anywhere where people can keep up to date with what you're doing and what the future of your whole career is, not just Cam? Yeah, I've got a very bad social media presence. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Chrono Pictures, C H R O N O Pictures. Um, or you can follow Isa, the writer and producer and co creator of the film, who has a much better social media presence at uh, Isa is Wrong, I S A 
is wrong all one thing so uh come hang out because we're totally addicted to our phones You've been lost in the woods for hours now, stumbling around in the dark. You come around the bend and see two people roasting marshmallows over a roaring fire. They see you coming into the clearing and gesture over to pull up a log. Welcome to Campfire Ashes. I'm Paul. And I'm Jess. Join us as we tell each other our originally written spooky stories around the campfire and then dive into the lore and legends that inspired them. Is it something that goes bump in the night? Is it something menacing lurking past the tree line? Or is it just weird and otherworldly? You'll find it here on Campfire Ashes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or right here on the Geekscape Network. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. Meanwhile, in New Jersey... So, Marissa, what talking points do you want to hit on in this week's episode? Well, Jackie, let's talk about how the film addresses the patriarchy. Ooh, and representation of marginalized people. Ooh, ooh, and even philosophical ramifications of good versus evil and horror. We can point out the triangle boobs, talk about the blood splatter, and oh, the practical effects. <sighs> um, and also the male gaze? My gaze at the males. hi From feminism to fangirling, the Jersey Ghouls cover all the bases of horror from a woman's perspective. New episodes are uploaded every other Sunday. Just search Jersey Ghouls to find us on social media and your favorite podcasting app. You've been lost in the woods for hours now, stumbling around in the dark. You come around the bend and see two people roasting marshmallows over a roaring fire. They see you coming into the clearing and gesture over to pull up a log. Welcome to Campfire Ashes. I'm Paul. And I'm Jess. Join us as we tell each other our originally written spooky stories around the campfire and then dive into the lore and legends that inspired them. Is it something that goes bump in the night? Is it something menacing lurking past the tree line? Or is it just weird and otherworldly? You'll find it here on Campfire Ashes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or right here on the Geekscape Network. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. Network.